Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. How you doing today, my friend? Oh, it is a sunny day over here in Brooklyn. Pretty good. Got some fun stuff lined up. How are you doing? Pretty good. One of my best friends is in town, so we're mm-hmm. going to Ikea later, which everybody knows is the epitome of great design. Absolutely. Especially with their Verdana typeface choices. <laughs> when I think of Ikea and design, I just think of Verdana. I don't even think about <laughs> the furniture they sell. It's so bad. <laughs> I'm like, you guys had it right with, with Futura. Why did we do I this? Know. I know. I know. But we still love them because they make great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's honestly a fairly light week. I feel like it's been heavy on other work and light on typography stuff for me. Yeah, I know. You have some other exciting new freelance projects potentially incoming. So yeah. very fun. What about you? I heard we have a story to hear today. <laughs> okay, we don't have like... Wait, wait. Before we get into it, today's Nerd Alert is special too, right? Yes, yes. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Oliver Schundorfer, I figured out how to say his name, guys, nice. is coming on the podcast because as you may have heard, we're doing a workshop with Oliver the first weekend in April and he's teaching us how to pair type the easy way. So Oliver is going to give like a preview of what he's teaching in that class later in this episode in the Nerd Alert. It's going to be all about the three common pitfalls with pairing type because we can all improve in that department. And I learned something from our little chat and I just know like in the workshop itself, there's going to be so much content to absorb and learn from. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's nice because we got to talk with him about the outline of what he's going to talk about and then talk with him on the podcast that we recorded afterwards. Yes. So it's really fun to see how the two connect in certain ways. And it's going to be, there's some new information in this workshop that I was not prepared for that I'm excited about. Oh, yeah. I seriously like mind blown rethinking how I think about type sort of situation. We are going to talk about later in one of our links a little bit, right? Yeah, we will be. We have an Oliver requested link in the newsletter. So um, we had quite a few contributors to the great links this week. But now to the important part, right? Okay, guys, this is... This is not even anything, but I was about to complain to this about Micah and Micah's like, you should tell this on the podcast and it isn't even a complaint. It's just mostly a complaint about myself. So I went on a date last night and I had explained to someone that does not know much about typography. I mean, everyone knows something, you know what I mean? Right. Having to explain what a foundry is, is so, (laughs) so difficult to someone that- I'm surprised that you feel this way. I'm really curious to hear how this went. Well, I first started by being like, so you know that people buy fonts or buy licenses to fonts to be technical. And Mm -hmm. this person I was on date with was like, no. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And they're like, people still make fonts? And I was like, oh. Oh. And so honestly, it's so humbling to myself when I hear this sort of stuff because I'm like, right, like I live in my own little bubble. This is good practice to explain what a foundry is. So I like really started from the beginning being like, here, I like opened up an app on my phone and was like, here's a custom type used in this app. And then explained how that was not just something that came with Microsoft Office as someone that isn't using design tools. Like that's something that a company had to purchase a license to, to use it. 
And where you purchase that license can sometimes be a foundry just to make things easy. I was like, oh, there could be marketplaces. Like marketplaces are different than foundries. But then I had the extra layer of being like, but the foundry that I work at, you don't (laughs) actually buy fonts on. And it was layered and confusing and hilarious. And I, I can see how that would get confusing pretty quick. Yep. So hopefully um, I got the point across. But hopefully. What, he had no reaction to this story? He was just like, no, no, oh. No. no, he was very nice and engaged and I think was able to follow it. But I don't know. I feel like I haven't felt so stuck in a long time trying to describe something <laughs> that I do. It kind of sounds like you were like that meme of the crypto date. Oh, my God. What is this meme? Like the guy who's super into crypto. And is like on an awful date where he's just like describing what crypto is and how crypto works and the ups and downs of the market to a date who was like, can we talk about anything else? And I was the crypto guy. Oh, God. You're the crypto bro. I hate that for myself, but I'll... I'll improve. <laughs> I'm sure that's not how it was. I'm sure that was not. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to share if anyone has like better explanations on how to describe foundries to non font people. I mean, the hard part is like he didn't know that fonts existed. Like, because normally I'll just be like, oh, yeah, we're a company, you know, Foundry is just a company that publishes fonts. Yeah. I mean, like, he knows fonts, like, he knew fonts, but it was like, I don't know, like, people don't understand the industry of fonts. That's fair. Like, you don't know that unless, like, there's a reason for you to be using fonts that aren't stock off of your computer. (laughs) I mean, I also have been describing the league the last few years as like, oh, we're like an online school. Like, we're teaching people about typography. People are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Way easier because then I tried to pile on the educational thing and I'm like, I'm not making any sense right now. This and you're like, uh, so about those sports. How about sports? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what am I doing to myself? F1. But, oh my gosh. I can talk F1. No, I can, no, I, I can chat F1. about Lewis Hamilton. Okay. We should get into this. Yeah. <laughs> What's our first link? Our first link this week is from Fast Company. We haven't shared something from them in a while. They do some great type and design news. The title is Forget Design Templates. Touch Type is an extraordinarily fun way to create your own typography. So I've actually seen, there's some great visuals in here. I've seen this tool before shared with me over like Instagram because I think it's been in development for a little bit. But first of all, it's really hard to grasp, I guess, verbal description. Like I definitely recommend looking up touch type and finding out for yourself. It's from this German design studio called Schultz Schultz. And it's basically a design tool that you use on an iPad or an iPhone in your browser and Depending on how many fingers you place on the tablet or the screen, you can start manipulating typography. It feels very matrix-like, feels very like futuristic way to design type and definitely like takes a bit to get going with the interface. I'm thinking like minority report. That's what I get out of it. That's literally what they mentioned at the end of the article. And I have not watched minority report, but. What? Oh, that's a classic. That's such a good old one. Yeah. It's funny because I, too, have seen this when somebody came out as a concept that didn't exist. Yeah. And so I was so shocked to see this article. Same. It's like, oh, somebody built it? What? Right. And then you can actually use it. It's freely available to play with. Mm -hmm. And it is so hard to use. 
it is very cool, but very difficult to wrap my brain around. I think, yeah, because I'm so not used to like two fingers is adjusting one metric, three fingers is adjusting another metric, four fingers is adjusting another metric. I have an iPhone It goes many. up to five, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it goes up to five. Yeah, exactly. It's like one just moves it around the screen. Yeah. Two rotates it for no reason. Yeah, uh, right? Three fingers lets you switch letters and it's like a radial selector. Like you twist and it selects a different letter, which is neat. And then what? Four fingers adjust width, I think. Yeah. And yeah. five fingers adjust weight. It's like a pretty insane way to think about designing letter forms. Yeah, it's bonkers. Literally at the touch of your fingers. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> but it's cool that you can check it out and see for yourself. I think it's interesting conceptually. I mean, one of the reasons behind this is thinking about the design tools we have today. You know, there's like Canva, which is said to democratize design because it's so user-friendly. And then there's Adobe Creative Cloud, which is certainly on the more like expert level of things. And so thinking about what happens when we create tools that are like in between these two spaces where it's accessible, but also understanding some principles of design and letters and typography is necessary. Something I also find that really interesting is just in, in building this, they were really thinking about how in the past we create design and how we create letter forms and thinking that as a type designer, Mark Schutz, the creative director of the studio, says that the design of letters has long been shaped by the tools that we use to draw them. If you think back in calligraphy or medieval Europe and Gothic writing, that was a broad edge nib. Even around the world, different kinds of brushes will impact the writing language. So I think at like a very, very base conceptual level, it's something interesting to think about on ways we can be rethinking the tools that we're using to create typographic outputs. That's a very good point. I was also surprised to find out that this design studio actually makes fonts. So they knew what the heck they were doing when they did this. It was just their their idea of how to do it was totally different in terms of tool design than anybody else. Right. I'm curious to see where this goes and if people are start using it or if it becomes like more advanced. I can imagine like, you know, it's only black and white. You get a given set of skeletons for a letter, but I feel like you can go in so many different directions with this sort of thing, which is fascinating. I don't want to be a naysayer, but I think this is like one of those things that somebody puts out now, right? And everybody's like, oh, that's so cool. And then forgets about. And in like five or 10 years, Somebody's going to be inspired by this and make something totally different. And it'll just be one of those things that contributes to a movement later on and doesn't necessarily directly change that much, Mm -hmm. which is okay. That's like a useful piece of history. For sure. And it makes me think a lot of us are designing on laptops and desktops without touchscreen features. This is certainly imagining a different future of design, which is interesting. But yeah, totally agree. I mean, variable fonts were a thing in the 90s, but they never were actually a thing until like, what, 20 years later. Right. Yeah, exactly. So very cool. Moving on, Micah, you have some important information on this next link because it is about <laughs> Chrome's Canary. And I was like, oh, I didn't know Canary was like the name of the icon that Chrome uses for their app. And then you quickly laughed at me and corrected me. <laughs> well, I did. I didn't think you were going to go on to tell the world. I thought you were going to pretend that you knew. Canary, <laughs> Canary is just like the beta version, like the testing version of Chrome. So every time they're like messing with new features that they're going to launch, they want to test it. They update Canary first and you can like opt into those beta features 
with essentially a different app that you have installed. You can have them both installed at the same time. I looked at this and I was kind of like, oh, this is not newsworthy. (laughs) Okay. They're just slowly refining the logo to be flatter, right? What am I missing? I thought the most interesting part is the thread in this. So they show like, oh yeah, we've adjusted this logo to look even flatter, et cetera. But they actually have designed different like Chrome icons for every operating system. So they have a Windows specific operating system, a Chrome specific operating system, and Mac. And they show those three. And they show actually how they design the icon to be a little bit different to better blend with the other icon system that is native to those platforms. Which I think okay. is like pretty unusual. I don't see that very often. And then there was another small, really, really detailed thing that's like two things down. Elvin, the designer posting about this, said, fun fact, we also found that placing certain shades of green and red next to each other created an unpleasant color vibration. So we introduced a very subtle gradient to the main icon to mitigate that, making the icon more accessible. So this is some super crazy high-detailed stuff. But yes, they made the graphics total like basically flat. But then if you look really, really, really closely, you can see like the slightest gradient that mm-hmm. uh, just like adds just like an extra level of Google nuance and subtlety <laughs> and design expertise, which I don't ever think about. Like I would never have thought about that before if it wasn't pointed out. And I appreciate that. I guess now that you're pointing it out, I'm looking at one of the other ones where it's like in a box and it's like three dimensional, just a little bit. And there's shadows that are reflecting the colors onto the white instead of a gray shadow. Mm, I see that. The yellow is reflecting a yellowish color onto the white behind it. The green's a greenish color. You're right. That is real nice polish. I like the iOS customization. They mentioned that it's like a nod to test flight, which is the app that you beta test other apps on iOS. Why why are you laughing at me? No, I just, I feel like this, I don't ever beta test things. I do not know about this, this thing, but I, I love how comfortably you're speaking about it because there are people that are speaking your language. Well, ironically, Apple bought test flight. Test flight was initially Mm -hmm. an independent app where other app developers could send out beta invites to whomever they wanted. And Apple at a certain point, I don't know, eight versions ago, was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. We should buy that and make that official. Yeah. <laughs> so now yeah. it's Apple Test Flight. Interesting. Okay. One typographic detail I really loved is that they did hinting on, I think, the D representing mm. beta, and they manually hinted it. So, like, even at the tiny icon size, it looks crisp, which is just like some really, that's also like crazy design detail stuff. I don't know if this is me, but on that curved banner version, uh-huh. It looks like they skewed the letter forms just a little bit to make it look a little bit more three-dimensional. I don't know if that's my brain playing tricks on me or what, but... No, it's possible. With Considering the shadow detail, maybe they would do that, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. I love looking at these tiny details because you know people have been working on this project for like three months just to get like the mm. perfect design situation, all that. Yeah, and I love that wild. they show the hinting with the pixelated version of the hinting because like that's always the confusion with like what is hinting it's like Mm. literally there's a set of pixels that has to be worked within so appreciate that you know yeah this is a cool behind the scenes on a detailed polish that you don't see often very good find Steph. she always just grabs the coolest coolest links for us including this next one it's from creative boom and it's titled monotypes 
Marie Boulanger on the nostalgic power of typography in the French Dispatch. All know I'm a fan of Marie's work. I feel like we've reviewed some of her typefaces in the past. And I think, yeah, Marie is a brand designer for Monotype and a type designer on her own. So I think it's pretty cool that she was reviewing the type in the French Dispatch. So like very quirky, very visual, uh, most recent Wes Anderson movie kind of about a pub, like a magazine house and, you know, this French magazine editor, I think, dies and then they talk about all the stories in it. It's like definitely more on the experimental side of the Wes Anderson spectrum, I will say. But I do think it was like one of the most visually satisfying Wes Anderson films I have seen. And what's so great about Marie's perspective is the film takes place in France and Marie's actually able to pick up on a few of the details that are like little nods to French culture and French history. She talks about a series of hand-lettered posters in it that are based off of the May 68 riots. And she even talks about like the design of the cigarettes package was like a nod to this like political movement and it's kind of like a wink to people that know about it. And then in general, I mean, we all know that just like Wes Anderson puts so much detail into his graphic design, which I think is why graphic designers just love his work. And like Marie has a really profound kind of snippet about why type is important in movies and, you know, why type is actually a component of culture and can be just as part of a storytelling as other parts of the art direction in a movie. And I think that's always nice to hear. Yeah, it is yet another thing where there's so much detail and polish that goes into it but it's not ever a thing that anybody talks about. So you kind of forget how much work multiple people must have put into the typography in this movie. Yeah. And we barely think about it. So it's, that's cool to see this. And there's a really great question here that she refused to answer, which drives me nuts, but I forgive you. <laughs> okay. Can a typeface be inherently nostalgic or does it depend on the context? It's mm-hmm. literally like a subheading in the article. And I was like, ooh, I'm interested. And then she kind of talks about it. And at the end, she's like, can it be? You tell me. And I was like, well, I want Europe again. It's definitely like a tough question because yeah. it's 100% the context. We can see Futura in some modern web design project. And we're not going to think it's inherently nostalgic. But if we see it in a certain color palette, surrounded by certain things that harkens back to a certain time. I think no, right? Can a typeface be inherently nostalgic? I feel like that's asking if a typeface can be racist. Obviously being a racist typeface is a much more loaded question, but don't we think it's all about the context? I am not sure where I land. That's kind of why I wanted to hear an opinion about it because my first pass is I would agree with you that it's all about the context, that even in the context where like it's, black text on white background with nothing around it. That is still a context. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so even a lot of them, when I see one where I have a previous history in my mind about a particular typeface, I see it in that quote unquote blank context. And that is what I think of. And so it's, it's still a context that triggers me to think of it nostalgically, but that's like living in a world without air. Like there's never not a context. Yeah. If there's always some context and nearly any context can make me think of it, doesn't that mean that it is inherently nostalgic? I don't know. Yeah, it's layered for sure. Yeah. I know what you mean. Philosophying myself into confusion. I mean, I think it's confusing too because even new designs of typefaces, while some 
like everything's rooted in history. Like no one's just making up the way like letter logic works, especially with something, you know, typography can get so based off aesthetics, but there's still a skeleton that we all know. And there's like a thousand ways to redo that, but everything is rooted in history. Like everything's a revival at the end of the day, but yeah, yeah. this is legit. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? I know. You know? <laughs> there's no answer. And that's why I right? thought that was such a, it was just one subheading out of the whole thing. And I was like, man, that really got me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Maybe we can have Marie on the podcast and chat. Oh, about that'd be fun. What she She's thinks. obviously very well-spoken and smart. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Speaking about well-spoken and smart people. Mm. <laughs> Our last link we're going to share before the very exciting Oliver Nerd Alert is something from Type Paris Talks 2016. And is a talk by Indra Kupferschmid. I know Indra because she's definitely involved in the Alphabets community, which is like the women in type community. She's a typographer and she's an educator. And this is just like one educationally juicy lecture. Oliver references that his framework for understanding how to combine typefaces came from this. It's a little bit over an hour. So it's something you should get a cup of coffee and sit down or have it on in the background while you work. But there's just a lot of really great new ways of thinking about relationships between typefaces and whenever someone can talk about categories of type without having to talk about the Vox A type I system, I'm all for it because again, that is so antiquated. And she makes lots of great points. One really interesting point she makes though is like, we often think about sans serif and serif being like totally completely different categories, like within type categorization, but truthfully there can be a high contrast sans serif and a high contrast serif that have more in common with each other than they do with, let's say, a high contrast sans serif and like a geometric sans serif. You know what I mean? And Oliver is going to go into this in crazy detail in the workshop. We've already like kind of seen what he has planned and he makes way more sense of this, but it's totally different ways of thinking about how typefaces are related to each other at their core and in their skeleton and in their flesh. And in that sense, I think it will open your eyes up to combining typefaces in ways that you're not scared of because you understand these fundamentals of how things were built and how things were designed. So Indra talks about it a little bit. Oliver will talk about it in more detail in the workshop and you'll hear his opinion on things in a bit. But just from the bottom of my heart, sincerely recommend putting this on. I like it. I am pulled in already by any talk that starts with the myths of something that I'm thinking about is always a good way to approach it. I love a presentation that way. And Myth 1.5 I see in in hers is, well, you know, the first myth is there are too many fonts already. Mm -hmm. And myth 1.5 is like, no, there are not because fonts are just like, and then has like a bunch of (laughs) options. Like fonts are just like music or clothes or books or movies or chairs or shoes or Haribo. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. (laughs) But that reminds me of something that came up in a chat the other week. With an interview we will be doing at some point in the near future, Mirko was referencing something that Eben said. Yes. Eben Sorkin, that he was in a cab once. I mean, hopefully Eben will tell this story at some point in in an interview on our podcast so that I'm not butchering it so much. But I liked the answer. He was like in a cab and the cab driver found out he makes fonts. And he was like, aren't there enough of those? Like, why would you need more of those? Mm-hmm. And according to Mirko, Evan's answer, this is like playing phone, but was, well, do you feel the same way about love songs? Like, are there too many love songs? And the guy was like, 
no, of course not. There's yeah. always a new take yeah. on a love song. And he was like, exactly. That's why I make fonts. And I was like, yeah, that's such a beautiful way to look at it, which is exactly what she's mirroring in this talk already from the get go. And I'm like, I'm already sold. I like this. Right. I honestly have not watched this full talk yet. So this makes me want to continue watching. Definitely lots of good points being made. All right. Without further ado, we are handing off to the next section of our podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest, Oliver Schundorfer. Oliver is the founder of one of our favorite blogs, Pimp My Type, and a UI and app designer by trade. Oliver blesses the internet with helpful articles and videos about using typography on the web, and they're all super approachable and insightful. He's just as nerdy as we are, and we couldn't think of a better teacher for our pairing type class that's coming out in April 2nd and 3rd. So, Oliver, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Olivia. It's so nice to be here, It's and it's also surprising because... You kind of evolved in pronouncing my surname. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I finally got a hold of you and was like, can you please tell me? I know I'm doing it wrong. No. <laughs> but some episodes ago, you featured again how I changed typefaces on pimpmytype.com. And there it was almost perfect. So I was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> we're only going up. Accents are our specialty here, so that's what we're best at. Oh, clearly, everyone knows from the geography typography episode, we can we can do them all. <laughs> we yeah. put our best effort. Yeah, 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 I saw that. It's great to be here. It's awesome since uh, we have some asynchronous intimacy here going on. Since you're whispering into my ears for a year or two now, <laughs> two, I think two years now. <laughs> Wow. Now, finally seeing you here in this video chat as well is like weird because I only know the faces. <laughs> I just, the voices. Where are right. you calling in from so our listeners know? I'm calling in from Austria, south of capital Vienna, middle of Europe to anybody who doesn't know. I love it when we can get people from across the world just like, quote unquote, in the same space. It's the best. Oliver, <laughs> you are about to teach... Pairing Type the Easy Way, our workshop on pairing type for people that want to become more confident in pairing type and understanding type combinations and become more efficient at it. I feel like it takes so long if you're just going by your gut and trying to pair that way, which truthfully is what a lot of people do because methodologies on this sort of stuff that are being taught are a little bit far and few in between. Your curriculum is going to be excellent. I'm so excited. We just got a preview of it. And this episode is a little bit of a tease of what they can expect in the upcoming workshop on April 2nd and 3rd. And if you can't make the workshop live, we have the recordings. I think the recordings are going to be just as valuable. I'm sure I'm going to go back to the recordings and then just relearn some of this knowledge because I'm just so excited about the curriculum. So can you tell us what are the three common pitfalls of pairing type? Yeah. Going by gut feeling is a very good thing or a very good keyword. And I think this is not wrong, which brings me to the first pitfall, not making a decision. We try to over-engineer this stuff, overthink it, over-scientificate it and so on, since this is more art than science. And type always conveys a feeling as well, as you already covered several times in this podcast, and an atmosphere, a vibe, something that makes you feel the project or the idea behind it. And I always find it very interesting how the feeling changes or the mood changes when you change a typeface. If you think of a dentist using Futura, it's, yeah, that's a good dentist. If you think of a dentist using OpenSense, 
to all the good dentists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think of a dentist using comic sense, yeah, okay. It's, yeah. <laughs> you always get an impression. You see things before you read them. And this emotional part, and but also the functional part here, since type has a utilitarian person, we, we want to read things. And when we combine these two together, this uh, in our type choice and our type combinations, we can get the most out of our project because things shift when you combine typefaces. But you should not get caught up in not making a decision or making it too hard on yourself. For example, one common thing is here, it's not a mistake. I hate to say that things are mistakes, quote unquote, because... It's a decision you made and it might fit or it might not fit or it might or it could be better. But it was the best decision you could make in that point from your knowledge, from the requirements, from the client, from the budget, whatever. But you made a decision. And I really want to encourage people losing the fear of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of designers learn about it and think typography police will show up and arrest them if they do a wrong yeah. <laughs> right. combination. Yeah, so make a decision. It might fit, it might not fit. You will evolve, it will improve over time. So this will be first, first, first pitfall. I okay, see. first pitfall, not making a decision. And that can also just make you really frustrated with the process too. If you're overthinking things, you're just never going to want to pair type again. You're going to be like, why am I doing this? This takes so long. And I think like the frustrations that come out of that are very real for designers, especially if they don't have the right information they need to make the decision. All right. Number two, yeah. what do you got for yeah. us? Or revoking your decisions. Yeah? Oh, that's true. So number two, let me add on a bit to this. Revoking the decision means always changing all the typefaces you chose. Oh. Not starting from one base. I think this is a good mm -hmm. tip because you have to start somewhere. If everything is flexible, it's horrible. Since you might use two, three, four different typefaces, maybe depending on, on how much you need or how much work, But when you change all over again, it's like an endless circle of pain and frustration, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, that's interesting because I feel like a lot of bosses or something will be like, give me 20 totally different ideas. Yeah. And it's so much more frustrating to be like, here's 20 totally different pairs where you could go through and be like, all right, here's five with this is the main font and switching out the secondary font, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then here's five more where what I had as the main font is now the secondary font, and I'm picking some new main fonts. Yeah, but sticking to one typeface for, if it's a long reading text, body text should be your main font, definitely. And then you find something that fits to that, Yeah. for example. Or there's something mm -hmm. uh, given, required. So, yeah, revoking a decision is even as hard as not making a decision. <laughs> That's good to hear. I feel like we've all been there. It's a pretty common pitfall. All right, number two. Let's hear it. This would be actually having no reason for another typeface. Mm. Yeah, just mix things because, yeah, somebody said it's good to mix. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like was a lot of my teachers in art school, yeah. to be yeah. honest with you. A lot of them were like, yeah, you have to pick two typefaces, not three. Yes. And yes. not one. Yes. Two. That is such a common yeah. thing. Oh, <laughs> right? it's the worst. <laughs> yeah, the, the question is, why should I have to? 
And I always or I often talk about these three different kinds of text, the display text, the body text, and the functional text. Display text being the text for headings and large short text, which should engage you, pull you in, work in larger sizes for little text. And then body text, something for long reading text, which should be very understated, calm, not get between you and the content. You should not even pay attention to body text, except you're a typography nerd, then you will pay all the attention to the body text. <laughs> so everybody listening, those are is the body text is also very important, but for normal people, <laughs> which are the people who are going to be digesting what you're making, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. Which is the point? But they really shouldn't think, oh, that's a crazy G when they read the body text. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. They shouldn't think that. They should think. I don't care how this letter looks. I care about the content, yeah. yeah? It shouldn't be striking. There shouldn't be any striking features for body text. And then we have functional text, the third group, which is for tiny text, a caption, maybe a footnote. In user interface design, I use this a lot since you have it in navigational elements, you have it in alerts, you have something that's very short and small, mostly very small on, on, on display. It can be as small as 12 pixel, which is tiny. And there you have... To, this has to be very legible and also very sturdy yeah. and also calm since you want it to integrate with the interface. But these are the three kinds of texts, basically. And then when you think of a pull quote in a blog post or a magazine or somewhere, this then can be, again, display text mm-hmm. since it's larger. And thinking about this helps you to decide for what kind of typeface you should go. And these are basically some reasons for it. Because if you think your main typeface does not perform well in this given situation, maybe it's a text typeface. And I have a weekly newsletter, the, the Font Friday newsletter, where I always recommend a typeface. And they always talk about this. Does it fit for what kind of text does it fit? And some typefaces fit for body text, display text, and functional mm-hmm. text. And you have to do some minor adjustments or there are some certain styles for that as well. But in some cases, you need to combine a typeface for that. Some weeks ago, I set a heading in a text typeface, and it looks very dull. The spacing is yeah. very loose. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work. And then you have to find something that works in this situation, and vice versa. So not having a reason for another typeface is always think about why you wanted to pick this. Yeah. It also can be an emotional reason, because your base typeface doesn't fit this mood you want to convey, mm-hmm. and then you mix it with something else. Maybe the base typeface is a requirement, and then you mix it with something else, and then you get the mood, or it shifts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So often for client work that I've even worked on, we'll have one typeface that they are like, this is the display typeface. This is a project I'm working on right now. We have this custom typeface made. This looks great, but they don't consider like the body copy. And so that's in a lot of scenarios that designers have to face is, okay, here's one given and you got to work with what you got, but you have all the options elsewhere too. So let's see how we can add to this with the combination to make it all stronger Yeah, completely. For example, I had a UI project where somebody required that their brand guideline said it's straight gothic. And straight gothic is from the 40s or something. And so the design is very dated. It's very quirky. It's in fashion right now again, since this neo-grotesque stuff is coming or we're on the wave right Mm -hmm. now. But it's not a proper typeface for user interfaces. Really not. Mm -hmm. It was too thin. The spacing didn't work. It's from the 40s. There were no user (laughs) interfaces back then. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to find something for the user interface, but we still could use trade gothing for the headings or something in there. Yeah, no. 
So totally to, true. to meet their requirements, but still find something. And in this kind of scenario, it would be combining something that should be seamlessly the same, mm -hmm. but perform better in this given context. Totally. That makes perfect sense. Also, I mean, honestly, what I'm, what I'm excited about in talking about this, these all make such good sense. And we're kind of talking about what some of the things to consider are. And from having just walked through what you're going to teach in the workshop, you have really practical examples to show us how to do those things, like in detail, that some of that I have not seen before. Olivia and I were both like, oh, that's new. That's cool. And so I'm really excited that for anybody who is joining or buys a ticket so they can watch the recording, it's going to be really cool to see these expanded in practical detail. Agreed. I'm excited about Agreed. That. All right, Oliver, take us home. What is pitfall number three? Okay, this is almost three and four a bit. Mm. It would be yeah. not, <laughs> not being same enough or not being different enough. Mm -hmm. mm. So... This is the thing that always drives me crazy when I see a font pair that when there is no reason for a second typeface sometimes, but also when are these now the same or are they not? Do you want this to be seamlessly the same or do you want it to be really contrasting? It's like mixing Futura with Helvetica. Mm -hmm. In what world would we live where this looks good? Yeah. In hell. Helvetica, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Oliver's own hell is just no. grotesque and geometric yeah. fonts floating around him all day, every day. It's, it's the same point size, too. So, like, there's not even contrast. <laughs> no, but we've all been in hell. Do you remember the time when macOS had Helvetica, new, new Helvetica in the, as the UI font? This was a dark time. It was 2013. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Only you, Oliver, though. You're right. Ariel is better. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> no, Lucida was better. Lucida Aww. Sands was better. That was the one before. But now we're okay with San Francisco. Okay. But yeah. So not making it different enough is a good tip for pairing typefaces as well is making them very, very different. So for example, you have a body text set in a sans serif. And now I'm not saying use a serif to combine it with because, if, as you will learn in the workshop and see, that the serifs are not the thing that's so distinguishing. It's more or less the form model or how the, uh, the, the typeface is constructed. And when you think about, for example, having a body text in a sans serif, then you could go for a handwritten or in, for your display text and for a handwritten, for a script, for something, whatever, slab serif craziness, western uh, poster wanted, whatever fits the theme or the topic, but something that's so different from your body text that it won't get in the way of it. So they are so different that it clearly is not, um, or there is obviously a good couple. And the other thing around, uh, or the other thing, making it same enough, this is more tricky. If you want it to seamlessly integrate, if you want it to have the same vibe or feeling, but slightly altered or different for the given situation, then you should look at the construction of the letter forms at the contrast, at the axis, and all the stuff I'm going to show in the workshop, which is a bit hard to explain now on an audio format, I guess. Right, right. Very, very insightful. I'm so excited to chat about this and the advanced techniques you have, which I can't spoil, 
to understand <laughs> the construction, the skeleton, and then also the flesh is some unprecedented material that I haven't personally seen. And I'm just going to be thinking about it forever after when I'm pairing type. So I'm just saying. You will never see typefaces the same. Yeah. Especially using words like skeleton. Oh, yes. Death. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. This is not by me. I have to I have to shout out to Indra Kupferschmidt. There's also a great talk, Type in Paris. I, I linked the note. We could link the talk in the show notes, which would be great, where she roughly also explained something about that because it's one part of, of this talk because it's something I only recently understood and started to seeing to, let's say, push away all the other layers of distraction, which would then be contrast and serif, and look at the bare construction of the letters, which gives you a basic understanding what fits to what. And this is a much more flexible and fluid system compared to the Vox A type high classification system you talked about yeah. in a previous episode, which I enjoyed a lot because it's stated it's more focused on art history. And I think it was released by a time where most of the typefaces still were serif typeface in the 60s or something. Yes. But we still use it but for what for yeah. it doesn't help us in our practical daily life and this is a great update by Indra Kupferschmidt yeah that's great we'll get that link from you to make sure we include it for this week because I think it'll pair nicely with this pairing discussion <laughs> <laughs> all right Good thanks one. thanks um okay Oliver recap what are the three that we talked about and then we'll head out of here Sure. So not making a decision was the first one. So make a decision. Even if you're not really certain, just make a decision for God's sake. It's only type. <laughs> then not having a reason for another typeface and then not making it different enough or not making it same enough. I love it. Mic drop right there. If you want to hear more <laughs> methodologies, more tips and tricks, it is just going to be packed full of them on our upcoming workshop, Pairing Type the Easy Way. Oliver is so knowledgeable, so friendly, so approachable. I'm sure you've gotten a taste of like how great he is on this podcast. It's just more of that. It's just literally more of that for a weekend. And I cannot <laughs> wait. It's going to be really fun. We are here to hype you up because I know it's going to be excellent. <laughs> thanks, Olivia. All right. Thanks for coming on, Oliver. You're the best. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Olivia. Looking forward to this workshop now. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs>